This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم وأنذرهم يوم الحسرة إذ قضي الأمر وهم في غفلة وهم لا يؤمنون إنا نحن نرث الأرض ومن عليها وإلينا يرجعون واذكر في الكتاب إبراهيم إنه كان صديقا نبيا إذ قال لأبيه يا أبت لم تعبد ما لا يسمع لم تعبد ما لا يسمع ولا يبصر ولا يغني عنك شيئا يا أبت إني قد جاءني من العلم ما لم يأتك فاتبعني أهدك صراطا سويا يا أبت لا تعبد الشيطان إن الشيطان كان للرحمن عصيا يا أبت إني أخاف أن يمسك عذاب من الرحمن فتكون للشيطان وليا الحمد لله رب العالمين والعاقبة للمتقين والصلاة والسلام على سيد المرسلين وعلى آله وصحبه ومن تبعهم بإحسان إلى يوم الدين We're inshallah going to be starting a new passage today that begins with ayah number 41 but I'll give you an introduction to that passage when we get there uh, The first task at hand is to complete uh, the yesterday's passage which uh, ends, at ayah num- ends with ayah number 40 uh, but inshallah first we will uh, begin we left off in the middle of ayah number 39 what we were just to, because we are kind of in the middle of a topic, we started reading from ayah number 34 where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, that is Isa, the son of Maryam. That is his story. And also I explained how it's pointing to him farther away to say, he's very distant, he has nothing to do with what these people attribute to him. Qawl al-haq, this is, this is the truth. This is the absolute truth and the speaking of the truth. But this is the same truth in which these people are creating distortion and confusion. It is absolutely not fitting Allah that He would have a son. Subhanah. Allah is completely free, completely above and beyond. Um, Allah is completely pure from anything that these people attribute to Him. Ida qada amran. And the fact that these people are so enamored, they are so impressed by Isa alayhi salam's miraculous birth, by Isa alayhi salam speaking in his, uh, the, the lap of his mother as an infant, by Isa alayhi salam performing miracles like he, reviving the dead, healing the, giving eyesight to the blind and healing lepers. They're so impressed by all of this. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala here says, if they want to be, if they, they, it is impressive. It is impressive for Isa to be born without a father. It is impressive for him to speak as an infant and for him to perform these miracles. But if they should be impressed by anyone or anything, they should be impressed by Allah and by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's ability to create what he wants, how he wants, whenever he wants, wherever he wants. That is what they should be impressed with, with Allah. Not with this 
the, the manifestation of Allah's greatness. Yes, Isa alayhi salam, I explained previously, it brings honor to Isa alayhi salam. I told you, I gave this example previously in one of the lessons from Surah Maryam, that if you have extra, if you have like extra cords, if you have some extra cords, or you have some extra paper, or something like that, extra pens, something that's not very valuable, something that's not worth a whole lot, you throw it in a little duffel bag, maybe you throw it in a box, and you kind of fold it up, and you put it in a corner. But what if you have jewelry? What if you have gold? What, do you have, what if you have diamonds? Do you throw that in a duffel bag, in a box, and kind of fold it up, wrap it up, and throw it in a corner? No, you don't. You put inside a nice little padded box. Alright, it's got velvet inside and everything, it's a padded little box. And then you put it inside one of, you know, maybe you put it in your dresser, or you go lock it in the safe in your closet, or whatever it is. Right? But you stash it away with a lot more care, with a lot more respect, with a lot more dignity. So what I want to point out is, when it was just pens or paper, I threw it in a box. When it was diamonds, I put it inside of a special case. The vessel of something amazing is obviously dignified accordingly. The vessel receives the same level of respect as what is contained therein. Isa alayhi salam is the manifestation of a miracle of Allah. So it brings honor to Isa. Maryam is the vessel through which that uh, miracle arrives. She is obviously respected and very dignified and honorable. And we revere her. But at the same time, while revering them, respecting them, we do realize that this originates from somewhere else. So this comes from Allah through them. Alright? You don't sit there and start thanking the tree when you, get a, when you pluck an apple off of a tree. You don't sit there and thank the tree, do you? You don't. You thank Allah. That's the same perspective. Taking a fruit from a tree and witnessing the miracle of Isa alayhi salam, in the end conclusion should have been no different for those people. That they would have respected Isa alayhi salam, obviously, but they would have admired, they would have respected, they would have been impressed, they would have been in awe of Allah. That Allah created this. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made this happen. So here Allah says, إِذَا قَضَى أَمْرًا إِذَا قَضَى أَمْرًا That whenever He decrees anything, any issue, فَإِنَّمَا يَقُولُ لَهُ كُنْ فَيَكُنْ Then He simply says to it, be and it is. That's it. That's all Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has to do. That's all the effort that's required on His part. وَإِنَّ اللَّهَ رَبِّي وَرَبُّكُمْ فَاعْبُدُوهُ And now here Isa alayhi salam continues saying that this Allah that we're talking about, He is not just my Lord, but He is also your Rabb. My Rabb and your Rabb. And I talked about this yesterday. How rububiyah, understanding that Allah has given you everything that you have, He's created you, He's given you everything that you have, you owe everything to Him, creates a sense of gratitude. That gratitude leads to فَاعْبُدُوهُ That leads to ubudiyah. That leads to ubudiyah. That leads to realizing what is the dynamic of this relationship. I am indebted to Allah. I will do whatever Allah wants me to do because He's given me everything that I could ever imagine or want. He gave me everything that I have. How could I not be grateful to Him? So like I explained yesterday, obedience is a side effect of gratitude. Gratitude. Alright, so in Allah, the next thing is, and I highlighted this in the khutbah earlier today, وَإِنَّ اللَّهَ رَبِّي وَرَبُّكُمْ Something else, that, the, that we find this consistent throughout the Qur'an, that the messengers, they, wouldn't, they would teach people to develop a relationship with Allah. They would teach people to reflect on Allah and their personal relationship with Allah. They wouldn't necessarily teach them that the only way you can have a relationship through Allah is through me. 
That the only way you can have a relationship with Allah is through me. Yes, I am the one that's bringing you this message and there are certain things that I am explaining to you, but at the end of the day, it is your relationship with Allah. Because otherwise what happens? If my relationship is based on a human being, my relationship with Allah is solely based on a human being, what happens when that human being is gone? Then my relationship with Allah will be gone. That's what Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu said to the, the community of Muslims, the Sahaba, the Ummah, on the day that the Prophet ﷺ passed away, that's exactly what he said. He said, realize this, that if you used to worship Muhammad, Muhammad's gone. Sallallahu alayhi wasallam. But if you worshipped Allah, then know that Allah is Hayyun and He is Qayyum. He is Hay and He is Qayyum. He is ever living. And He's still there. And you need to continue to worship Him. Nothing changes in terms of your relationship with Allah. And that's something that's very important. In Allah Rabbi wa Rabbukum. He's emphasizing that. He's not just my Rabb, but He's also your Rabb. Rabbi wa Rabbukum. Fa'buduhu. So worship Him, enslave yourself to Him, devote and dedicate yourself to Him. Hada siratun mustaqim. This is the straight path. And I explained how this is the basis and the foundation of deen. It's a tragedy today that our basis and our foundation of our deen sometimes, for many individuals, can start to become difference of opinion, minutia of fiqh, a particular discussion in aqidah, that ends up becoming the basis of a person's entire deen. If somebody comes along and tells them otherwise, it's, it's like their world falls apart. That's not the foundation of our deen. The foundation of our deen is my relationship with Allah. Allah has given me everything that I have and I must live this life in a way that shows that I am grateful to Allah. That's where you start. And you build up from there. هَذَا سُرَاتٌ مُسْتَقِيمٌ And as long as you stick to that, as long as you stick to that, nothing could ever deter you, nothing will detract you, nothing will throw you off the straight path. That will keep you solid. Those are your wheels. You'll stay solid. فَاخْتَلَفَ الْأَحْزَابُ مِنْ بَيْنِهِمْ But what happened to these people? They started severely disagreeing and fighting with each other amongst themselves. And that's what I explained, that when you get off the straight path, then it's a free-for-all. Now you're off-roading. Now somebody's this way, and somebody's going there, and somebody's going here. Everybody's all over the place. No consistency at that point. فَوَيْلٌ لِلَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا مِنْ مَشْهَدِ يَوْمٍ عَظِيمٌ And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that it's a warning how sad, how pathetic is the condition of those people who have disbelieved, and how sad and pathetic will their condition be on the day when they will have to witness, and they will be testified against, and they will be made to stand on the day, the great day, the profound day, يَوْمُنْ عَظِيمٌ The day of judgment. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, أَسْمِعْ بِهِمْ وَأَبْصِرْ Look how well they can hear and they can see now. Because the Qur'an tells us these people will say, أَبْصَرْنَا وَسَمِعْنَا We've seen and we've heard. So Allah says, look how well they can hear and they can see now. Now they're fully, oh yes, I see, I hear, I'm completely. Allah says, too little, too late. يَوْمَيَأْتُونَنَا On the day that they come to us, they'll be able to completely hear. And see the truth and hear the truth. Those obstacles are gone. لَكِنِ الظَّالِمُونَ الْيَوْمَ فِي ضَلَالِ مُبِينَ But it will be too late there. The place where, the time and the place that it matters is here and now. But what's going on with them here and now? Al-yawma, today, al-zalimuna al-yawma fi dalal mubin They're completely drowned. They're completely buried in their own delusions. They're buried in their own delusions. Complete open misguidance. And the word fi is they're surrounded by it. 
They can't see past their own, their own distractions, their own desires, their own delusions. They're completely surrounded by it. And they're encased in it. They can't see the truth. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then, ayah number 39, He says, وَأَنذِرْهُمْ So what do you need to do? At the end of the day, it boils down to, okay, fine, that's the condition, that's the situation. You know, like if somebody's giving a talk and he says, we have this problem today, and we have that problem today, and, we have, and for 20 minutes they go on about all the problems we have, what do you naturally say to them? Fine, we got a lot of problems, but what do we do? So what do we do? The messenger is being told, if this is the condition, then what do you do with them? وَأَنذِرْهُمْ Warn them. And I explained yesterday, that the meaning of warning here isn't just to like scare someone. You're gonna go to hell. No, 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 no. You don't just scare someone like that. It means to warn somebody out of love for them, out of concern for them, and you're warning them of something that is of imminent danger to them. The example I gave, somebody's walking towards a ditch, but they're like looking up at the sky or something, and they're walking towards a ditch, and this somebody you actually care about, not somebody you'd like to see fall in a ditch. Alright? You shouldn't like it to anybody to fall in a ditch, but you get what I'm trying to say. You know? So, somebody you really, really care about, so you tell, wait, 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 hold on, hold on, stop, stop, where do you think you're going? So, similarly, you warn them, because you care about them, because you don't want them to harm themselves and hurt themselves. وَأَنذِرْهُمْ So warn them. Warn them of what? يَوْمَ الْحَسْرَةِ يَوْمَ الْحَسْرَةِ The day of severe grief and sorrow. Remorse and regret. Such remorse and such regret, like Allah tells us in Surah Al-Furqan, about a very specific situation of some people on that day. وَيَوْمَ يَعَضُّ الظَّالِمُ عَلَى يَدَيْهِ يَعَضُّ in the Arabic language doesn't refer to just biting. It means to like chew on something with your molars, with your back teeth, to chew on something. They'll start chewing on their hands. Some of the narrations, some of the interpretations of this from the Sahaba and the Tabi'un, say they'll literally gnaw off their entire arms. I mean, that seems like, how is that even possible? But that's how severe the remorse, the regret, that, that they literally will hate themselves, to the point where they'll gnaw off their own arms. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, يَوْمَ hasra People who disbelieved, people who were disobedient, people who were ungrateful to Allah, it's obviously why they will regret, and what they will regret, and what they will uh, be uh, remorseful about. But the Prophet ﷺ tells us that there will be a level of remorse and regret with everyone on that day. Because you just can't help. Because of our flawed nature in this world, we can't help but when we show up on that day, just, just kind of, just a little bit tell yourself like, man, what were you thinking? What was I thinking? That the Prophet ﷺ tells us even when people go to Jannah, paradise, some people in paradise will even regret. And what will they regret? Every second I spend in this world without remembering Allah. Because they'll look at the person in the stage of paradise higher than them, and how much more he has, and how much closer to Allah he is. And they'll realize that all he did was maybe a little bit more than I did. If I would have just been a little bit smarter with my time, what more could I have achieved? If Allah has given me all of this, the last person to enter into paradise, the last person taken out from hell and entered into paradise, that person will be given a jannah, a paradise, ten times... Ten times the size of this world. Ten times the size of this world will be his personal paradise. This is the last guy. This is the guy in the basement. There's no basement in Jannah, but you get what I'm trying to say. This is the guy in the basement. 
And this is what he'll get. This is the guy picked last in the draft. And he's gonna get a Jannah 10 times the size of this world. Subhanallah. Can you imagine what the Jannah of some people will be like? And so that person won't, just can't, won't be able to help himself but just look up and be like, man, what was I thinking? I had no idea. I had no idea. The Prophet said, I'm in a beautiful hadith, he actually tells us, the Jannah of some people. And he specifically gave this glad tidings to Aisha radiallahu anha. The Jannah of some people will be such that the ceiling, the roof of their paradise will be the Arsh of Rahman. I want you to imagine that. Where it talks about some people will get the blessing of seeing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on a weekly basis or on a daily basis or twice a day morning and evening as they used to do dhikr. These people, their blessing will be whenever they feel like seeing Allah, they'll simply just look up. That'll be the jannah of some people. So this is it. Yawm al-hasra. It will be the day of remorse and regret. إِذْ قُضِيَ الْأَمْرِ When the affair, when the issue will be completely decided. When everything is done. Done deal. It's done. Everything's been decided, everyone has been distributed, it's all done. At that time, that remorse and that regret will overcome those people. And will be so harsh, like I explained from Surah Zukhruf yesterday. وَنَادَوْ يَا Malik. They'll say, O Malik, gatekeeper of hell, لِيَقْضِ عَلَيْنَا رَبُّكَ Please tell Allah to just finish us. يَا لَيْتَنِي كُنْتُ تُرَابًا I wish I could just become dust, I wish I could die. I can't live like this anymore. And, and they, the, the, the Mufassirun, they explain that there, there will be very, very severe forms of physical torment in hell. But what will be more painful to them than the physical torment will be that emotional torment. That how much they will hate themselves for ending up in that position. لِيَقْضِ عَلَيْنَا رَبُّكَ He'll say, قَالَ إِنَّكُمْ مَاكِثُونَ Ah, you're not going nowhere, you're just gonna stay here. You're staying here. لَا يَمُوتُ فِيهَا وَلَا يَحْيَا No death, no life. Miserable existence. So this will be their predicament. And I explained about إِقُضِيَ الْأَمْرِ How will this issue be decided and decreed? And basically everyone will be told, that's it. This is it. This is the way it's gonna be now. That hadith from Sahih Muslim, where the Prophet ﷺ tells us that on the day of judgment, the people of Jannah are put in Jannah, the people of hell are put in hell. Death will be brought in the shape, in the form of a lamb. And it will be slaughtered in front of everyone. It will be killed in front of everyone. And then... Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will have announced, Ya ahl al-jannati khuludun fala mawta. O people of paradise, that's it. This is for all of eternity now, no more death. Ya ahl al-nar, O people of hell, khuludun fala mawta. This is, this is it for all of eternity, no more death. And then the Prophet recited this ayah, ayah number 39 from Surah Maryam, وَأَنذِرْهُمْ يَوْمَ الْحَسْرَةِ إِذْ قُضِيَ الْأَمْرِ وَهُمْ فِي غَفْلَةٍ This is from where we left off yesterday. وَهُمْ فِي غَفْلَةٍ The wow here, is what we call wow haliya. This is wow haliya, which means. But what is their condition right now? Even though that'll be the situation, that'll be the eventual circumstances, right? But what is their situation now? They're completely oblivious. The technical definition that we always make of ghafla is heedlessness. It just means to be oblivious. And not just oblivious where you intentionally don't care about something. Like self-imposed, self-afflicted, 
Obliviousness. Like, whatever. I don't know. Who cares? Ghafla. Just I don't care. They just don't care. And again, they, the imagery here is fee. It doesn't say, وَهُمْ غَافِلُونَ They are oblivious. No, no, it says they are in obliviousness. They are in obliviousness. Again, the imagery in the Arabic languages, it's like they're drowning in their own carelessness. It's like they're drowning in their own obliviousness. It's like they're drowning in their own apathy. They're drowning in it. I just don't care. And that I don't care attitude is so bad, they literally do not care about anything. And it gets to the point where they forget how to care about anything. They forget what responsibility was. They forget what awareness is. And we see that predicament. That can happen with people in their worldly affairs. But this is talking about the spiritual affair. In the spiritual affair. That this is what happens with people. Very beautiful, interesting quote about ghafla and the nature of ghafla. You know, we, we, we need to always make sure we don't confuse ghafla with anything that is more admirable. Ghafla is very bad. We seek refuge with Allah from ghafla. From this apathy, obliviousness, carelessness, neg- negligence. We take refuge with Allah from this. But sometimes we should, we, we should never make the mistake of confusing these things. You know, one common predicament, one common example is, you know when you're sitting in a lecture, or you're sitting in the masjid, or you're sitting in the khutbah, now of course, as long as it's a reasonable situation, right? As long as it's a decent khutbah, decent lecture, decent scenario, alright? So I understand sometimes your hand is forced, but even then, you should pay attention to this. Sometimes when you're sitting in what could be a situation of learning, or a gathering, or a lecture, or a khutbah, or something like that, a class, and you kind of doze off, you sleep, kind of knock off, you doze off just a little bit. Oftentimes, people say, oh, Sakina, brother, Sakina. Right? Because the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ says, that, إِذَا اجْتَمَعَ قَوْمٌ مَجْتَمَعَ قَوْمٌ فِي بَيْتٍ مِّن بُيُوتِ اللَّهِ Whenever people gather together in one of the houses of Allah, يَذْكُرُونَ اللَّهِ They remember Allah, or يَتْلُونَ كِتَابَ اللَّهِ وَيَتَدَارَسُونَهُ They're reciting the book of Allah and studying it. نَزَلَتْ عَلَيْهِمُ السَّكِينَةِ إِلَّا نَزَلَتْ عَلَيْهِمُ السَّكِينَةِ Sakina descends upon them, peace and tranquility descends upon them. So Ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu, Abdullah bin Mas'ud radiallahu anhu, who was the muqri and the mu'allim, who was the muqri and the mu'allim of the sahaba. It's probably children just messing with you. It's all right. it was, he was the muqri, I, I used to do that, so I know exactly what that's about. So it, he was the muqri and the mu'allim of the sahaba. He was the teacher, the Qur'an teacher, and just the general ustad, the teacher, the mu'allim of the generation of sahaba and tabi'un. Very knowledgeable. There are quotes of the sahaba that say, that all of the knowledge of our generation of the Sahaba used to end on two people. I mean, there were two guys that were more knowledgeable than everybody else. And that was Ali radiallahu anhu and Abdullah bin Mas'ud radiallahu anhu. Very, very big scholar of the Sahaba. Can you imagine what that means? Alright, so he used to teach... It's okay, it's alright, come on. Alright, this is a test of your focus and your attention span, alright? So, he used to teach people... And subhanAllah, something amazing about him was that he used to teach people common lectures. This is like we have the students here for the summer program. That's a different scenario where these are more serious or more intermediate, advanced type students. It's a bigger commitment. And they come in knowing that they're making that commitment. But just like general durus for the common people, for the common public, 
the common ummah, he used to give those public lectures once a week. And when people would ask him to do more, he says, no, the Prophet ﷺ told me to never make people tired of the deen. So he used to do it once a week. So he's giving his lecture, he's teaching his lesson, and he noticed some people kind of dozing off. Alright? So he says, hey, what do you, what do you think you're doing? Mm, what's going on? Right? What's going on with you? And so the person said, Sakina, Sakina. Right? We're talking about Qur'an and Islam and Allah and Rasul. Sakina. Abdullah bin Mas'ud said something interesting about ghafla. He said, Sakina is sleeping in the battlefield. Sakina is sleeping in the battlefield. Sleeping in the masjid, sleeping in the dars, sleeping in the lesson, sleeping in the khutbah, is not sakina, that is ghafla. That's carelessness, that's negligence, that's apathy. Because you're not paying attention to how can I improve my life based on what's being said. And a common predicament we often have is, we're assessing the level of interest that we have, we invest into a lecture or a khutbah based on, is there anything that he's saying that I don't know already? That's not the objective. What is he saying that I do not live at the moment? That I am not practicing right now? So he could be talking about the fact that you have to pray five times a day. What you should not be assessing is, do I know that I have to pray five times a day or not? Rather what you should be assessing is, do I pray five times a day or not? Do I pray five times a day or not? Alright? So ghafla. So وَهُمْ فِي غَفْلَةٍ They're buried in this type of negligence, carelessness, apathy, obliviousness. وَهُمْ لَا يُدْلَمُونَ And their condition, excuse me, وَهُمْ لَا يُؤْمِنُونَ And their condition is such, today, here and now, لَا يُؤْمِنُونَ Not only do they not believe right now, but they will not believe going forward. And there's a very interesting relationship here. The first one was in the nominal form, فِي غَفْلَةٍ they are drowning in their obliviousness, their, their carelessness, their apathy. Secondly, it uses, in a, it uses a verb, it's the verb after that. And not just is it a verb, but it's the present slash future tense verb. That because of that apathy, ghafla is such a dangerous thing, that if you fall prey to ghafla, if you fall victim to ghafla, if you let yourself fall into ghafla, it will lead you to disbelief. And not only will it lead you to disbelief, it stunts your spiritual growth. It stops your... Because these people are obviously disbelievers right now, right? But because they have become ghafil, because they have become oblivious, and apathetic, and negligent, they will continue to remain in disbelief they will continue to disbelieve. Their disbelief will renew itself over and over and over again. Because ghafla is one of those things that again, it's like, it's like you drown in it. It's, it blocks the iman, the nur of the heart. It stunts your spiritual growth. You don't see the truth, you don't hear the truth, because you don't care about the truth. So the first thing is to get out of that ghafla. And the way you get out of that ghafla is by... First of all, the dhikr of Allah needs to be revived in a person's life. A person needs to recommit themselves to dhikr. The dhikr of Allah. And dhikr of Allah has many manifestations. Just even say the name of Allah. But what's more important than that is do actual dhikr. And actual, true actual dhikr is reflection. Reflection. Don't just say subhanallah, but think about what subhanallah means. Think about how absolutely perfect and flawless is Allah. 
Don't just say Alhamdulillah, but think about Alhamdulillah. Think about all the things that you are grateful to Allah for. Everything, all the reasons why Allah deserves praise from you. Don't just say Astaghfirullah, but think why you need to seek forgiveness from Allah. What are the things that you've done? And then the other manifestations of dhikr, recitation of Qur'an. Very important. The thing, the, the Qur'an is like a shield from ghafla. The Qur'an is the cure for ghafla. You need to develop a personal, intimate relationship with the Qur'an. Read the Qur'an, memorize the Qur'an, understand the Qur'an. All of these things. And then the third thing that I'll mention here, a third manifestation of dhikr, وَأَقِمِ الصَّلَاةَ لِذِكْرِي Establish the prayer for the sake of my remembrance. Like Allah commanded Musa, salah, prayer, commit yourself to prayer. Prayer will literally drag you out of ghafla. Prayer is that lifeline. It's the lifeline. It's what will save you from your ghafla. And salah is something that's very important. So, وَهُمْ فِي غَفْلَةٍ وَهُمْ لَا يُؤْمِنُونَ And they just don't believe, and they will continue to not believe. Finally, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says here, إِنَّا نَحْنُ نَرِثُ الْأَرْضَ وَمَنْ عَلَيْهَا وَإِلَيْنَا يُرْجَعُونَ إِنَّا نَحْنُ Most definitely we, and only we. Most definitely we, إِنَّا This has an attached pronoun. So it only means most definitely. إِنَّا means most definitely, certainly. Most definitely we. And then again you have نَحْنُ Another independent pronoun. That's for emphasis, exclusivity. Most definitely we and only we. Narithu. Narithu. We will inherit. We will inherit. Literally, this comes from the word irth, which means to inherit. Narithu, we will inherit. Al-arda, what will we inherit? The earth, the ground. The entire earth, al-arda. Waman alayha. And anyone that is on the earth. Anyone who is on the earth, we will inherit them as well. Now, what does that exactly mean? This is of course Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaking in first person and plural. And I haven't clarified this yet because most people are familiar with it, but it should be clarified uh, just for clarification's sake and also to not assume anything on behalf of anyone listening to the lesson. That is when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks in the plural, that should cause no level of confusion or some theological... Um, you know, some theological crisis for a person. This is what we call the royal plural or the majestic we. The royal plural or the majestic we. Alright? What that simply means is that when somebody from a higher position speaks, and he is specifically speaking in a tone or in a situation or circumstances, where he is demonstrating his, not just his authority, but his benevolence and his control over the situation, then that plural is used to show the superiority. And within Arab, and this applies in every language. We see, we see this in every language. And within Arabic, it's very, very common. It's actually a wide, it has a very broad usage within the Arabic language. So, so much so that when you're speaking to someone older than you, like you're speaking to your father or somebody older than you or somebody in a position of respect with you, and you want to say that, um, you know, you did this. You did this. So the tone of respect, the way that the Arabs would say that respectfully is they wouldn't say, فَعَلْتَ كَذَا وَكَذَا You did this such and such thing. They would say, فَعَلْتُمْ كَذَا وَكَذَا And they would use the plural. All of you done this and this. 
Now of course he's only speaking to one person, his father, but he's using a plural to show respect to the father. So generally the plural is used to create a tone of respect. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks in the plural. إِنَّا نَحْنُ نَرِثُ الْأَرْضَ وَمَنْ عَلَيْهَا Most definitely we and only we will inherit the entire earth and everything, everyone that is on the face of the earth. Now, what does that mean? What's that talking about? It doesn't literally mean inheritance like the way we think of it. Not legal inheritance. Not inheritance in terms of fiqh. Legal inheritance. Because that wouldn't make any sense. It means inheritance in terms... It's using the word, the, the meaning of inheritance more figuratively. It's figuratively using the meaning of inheritance. Now what is the end conclusion of inheritance? That where does everything end up? Right? Where does everything end up eventually? And you know like you hear somebody say, like if somebody's, somebody you know, has, somebody has an older uncle or an older grandparent or an older parent, and they have all this money, then somebody asks them about the money, he says, I'm not worried, eventually it's all gonna be mine anyways. Right? Eventually, it'll all be mine anyways. And what he means is, I'm the one who's gonna inherit all of this. Right? Or the father might tell the son, son, this is all gonna be yours one day. The father tells the son, Son, this is all going to be yours one day. About the business, about the house, about the money, this is all be your one, yours one day. That's what it means. Inheritance in the figurative sense means, where does everything end up at the end of the day? That these people fight over control on the earth, these people fight over dominance on the earth, who has more followers, who has more people, who has a bigger army, who has more control, who has more money, who has more, uh, more influence. They fight over these things. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that they're wasting their time. Remember it said, فَاخْتَلَفَ الْأَحْزَابُ مِنْ بَيْنِهِمْ Allah says all these people are wasting their time. Because at the end of the day, who does everything belong to? It belongs to Allah. It belongs to Him now. Absolutely. But right now there's at least this illusion, there's at least this illusion, that no, this is mine. Somebody can delude themselves into thinking that this is mine right now. But on the day of judgment, when everything is said and done, Will there be any doubt left in anyone's mind about what is Allah's and what is mine? There will be no doubts left. No doubts. No one's going to try to stand on that day and try to argue. This is mine. No one's going to try to do that. And we have that beautiful ayah in the Qur'an as well. Where it talks about, Surah Al-Mu'min, Surah Al-Ghafir. Where it talks about that. That when everything in the tafsir of the, those ayat it's mentioned, that when everything... When everything is completely done, when everyone has passed away, when all the arwah, all the souls of everyone have been taken up, even the angels and even the angel of death, and not a living thing, not a living soul remains, it is only Allah, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will pose that question. لِمَنِلْ مُلْكُ الْيَوْمِ Who does control, kingdom, authority belong to today? لِلَّهِ الْوَاحِدِ الْقَحَارِ when there's no response, Allah, Allah will say, لِلَّهِ الْوَاحِدِ الْقَهَارِ It belongs to Allah alone. It belongs to Allah alone. So, إِنَّا نَحْنُ نَرِثُ الْأَرْضَ وَمَنْ عَلَيْهَا And everyone who's on the face of the earth has to eventually end up and answer to Allah. Everyone has to answer to Allah. مَا مِنْ رَجُلٍ إِلَّا سَيُكَلِّمُهُ رَبُّهُ لَيْسَ بَيْنَهُ وَبَيْنَهُ تُرْجُمَانِ The Prophet ﷺ in an authentic narration from Bukhari and Muslim tells us, not a single person exists, except that that person, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will directly speak to them, address them, and hold them accountable. لَيْسَ بَيْنَهُ وَبَيْنَهُ تُرْجُمَانِ There will be no intermediary, no translator, no interpreter between the two of them. 
Allah will hold each and every single person accountable. فَيَنْظُرُ أَيْمَنَ مِنْهُ What would that person do? He'll look to his right and try to get away. فَلَا يَرَى إِلَّا مَا قَدَّمَ مِنْ عَمْلِهِ He'll see nothing but his own actions blocking him off. فَيَنْظُرُ أَشْأَمَ مِنْهُ He'll look to his left. فَلَا يَنْظُرُ إِلَّا مَا قَدَّمَ He'll only see his own actions. فَيَنْظُرُ بَيْنَ يَدَيْهِ Then he'll look in front of him. فَلَا يَرَى إِلَّا النَّارَ تِلْقَاءَ وَجْهِ Then he will only see the fire of hell blazing and burning in front of his face. Everybody's got to face that day. The Prophet ﷺ tells us that, that that day is coming when not the feet of Adam, Ibn Adam, the feet of Ibn Adam, the feet of the son of Adam, human beings, لا يزال قدماء ابن آدم حتى يسأل عن أربعين That that day is coming that the feet of the son of Adam will not be able to move from their place until he answers for four things. عن عمره فيما أبنا فيما أفنا وعن شبابه فيما أبلا About his life, what did he spend his life doing? His youth, how did he spend his youth? His money, how did he earn it? How did he spend it? And how much of his knowledge did he practice? So everyone's got to stand before Allah and answer to Allah. إِنَّا نَحْنُ نَرِثُ الْأَرْضَ وَمَنْ عَلَيْهَا وَإِلَيْنَا يُرْجَعُونَ وَإِلَيْنَا يُرْجَعُونَ And to us alone, and the reason why I put that word alone, to us only, to us alone, is because there is reverse sentence structure here, abnormal sentence structure. It's normally يُرْجَعُونَ إِلَيْنَا But here it's إِلَيْنَا يُرْجَعُونَ To us alone, will they all be returned? Will they all be returned? يُرْجَعُونَ now again, my Arabic students, yurja'una. You know that this is passive. This is passive. Right? Now what's the, what's, what's the point of it being passive? Normally if you just read that across, you say, and to us alone, will they all return? No, no, no. Will they be returned? To us alone, will they all be returned? Not will they return, but they will be returned. Passive. And the implication, the significance of that linguistically, is if it, to us alone will they all return, meaning they're coming of their own accord. They're coming of their own will, their own record, by their own will. Alright, let's go, time to go. Like the ring bell rings, and okay, let's go, bismillah. But that's not the case. Yurja'un. They will be returned. That whether willingly, or begrudgingly. Whether willingly, or unwillingly, begrudgingly, doesn't matter whether they want to or not, whether they're ready or not, they will have to go. They'll be made to go. It's time to go. The Quran tells us about this. That when death comes to people, what do they say? إِذَا جَاهَدَهُمُ الْمَوْتُ قَالَ Allah, send me back, send me back. I'll go and go do good where I forgot to do it, where I didn't do it. Kalla. They'll be told, no way. That's not happening. Sorry. It's not gonna happen. This is just talk. This is empty talk. Doesn't mean anything at this point. You could have returned back to Allah in this dunya. Toba. Toba means to return back. You could have returned back to Allah willingly. Willingly you could have returned back to Allah. You chose not to do that. Now you are being returned to Allah, but not in a very good condition. Now you're being returned to Allah to be held accountable. وَإِلَيْنَا يُرْجَعُونَ The next passage, starting with ayah number 41, 
As I told you previously, this is the next passage of the surah. Now we've come across a few small, small passages. Like if you go all the way back to the beginning of the surah, alright, you see that from the very beginning of the surah, it was the story of Zakaria. Then from ayah number 16, so 1 through 15 was the story of Zakaria and his son, the birth of his son Yahya. Then from ayah number 16, it was the story of Maryam and the birth of Isa. Then from ayah number 34, it was like the conclusion. It was a conclusion. To here to ayah number 41, ending with ayah number 40. However, at the same time, what you can say is that these are three small subsections, but they all come together to be the first major part of the surah, part one of the surah. You can say that these are three subsections that form together, that come together to be the part one of the surah. Alright, that entire chapter is concluded. But that doesn't mean we're going to be disconnected, we're going to talk about something completely off the wall and random topic now. No, no, no. It connects, there's, there's segue, there's transition, there's consistency. But nevertheless, that was one major issue that was covered altogether. Ayah number 41 starts the middle part 2 of the surah. In total, and major parts, there are three parts to the surah. The, the first part of the surah obviously was an address to the Ahlul Kitab. It was an address to the Ahlul Kitab. Jews and Christians. Jews because they rejected belief in Isa alayhi salam. So they're being reminded that listen, you are missing the point here. Isa alayhi salam and everything that happened with him, why do you have trouble believing in that? Don't you believe in Allah? Don't you already believe in prophets and their miracles? Then what makes it so difficult to believe in this? The Christians are being addressed as well because they're being told that you've deified Isa alayhi salam and you need to rethink that. Because he's a creation of Allah. So first the story of Zakaria and Yahya is given to them. That look, he was born as a miracle. And similarly, Isa was born as a miracle. And at the end of the day, your focus needs to be the greatness of Allah. And that's how you reconcile all of this. And of course, our lesson and our ibrah here, like I talked about in the beginning passage, in the beginning days, it taught us how to make dua. It taught us valuable lessons about parenting. It taught us valuable lessons of how to be a good child. It talked about what el- the predicament of elderly parents. Remember we talked about that. So it taught us how to be a good child when we've grown up, when we're mature adults ourselves, and our parents are very old and senile. How do you continue to be good to them and take care of them? We read about Maryam, and how she was a mother, and how her parents were, and that entire situation. We learned about the, the purity, the decency, the modesty, the self-respect of Maryam. We learned about Isa alayhi salam and the type of person that he was and his qualities in dealing with Allah and dealing with the people. And then we got these very valuable lessons in these last few ayat about believing in Allah and how to properly believe in Allah and to prepare for that day, that day that's coming. So that day we have as little regret, remorse as possible. Here now, the middle passage, I'll go ahead and first tell you about the third part of the surah. The third part of the surah will be an address to the mushrikun of Makkah. Mushrikun. People who completely disbelieve in Allah and associate partners to Allah. And especially the mushrikun which was the predicament of the Prophet ﷺ, the people he was having to deal with. 
and how to deal with those people and it's a reprimand to those people. So the middle part of the surah has two primary functions in terms of the overall grander scheme. There's lots of lessons that we're going to learn here. But when you talk about the overall uh, theme of the surah, it has two primary purposes here, two things. The first thing I want you to make a note of is that this serves as that segue. That it goes from talking about something that is very, very specific to the Ahlul Kitab. But if you talk to, about Isa to the Mushrikun, they don't even know what you're talking about, and they don't care what you're talking about. But before he talks to the Mushrikun, it connects everything. And it connects everything by first talking about Ibrahim alayhi salam. And I talked about this when we, in the introduction to the surah. Ibrahim alayhi salam is that universal figure. That universal figure. That he is not only revered by the Ahlul Kitab and by the Muslims, but he's also very strangely, very interestingly, he was revered by the Mushrikun of Makkah as well. People that didn't even believe in prophets and messengers and all of this business. They even revere him. So he serves as that connection. The universality of the message is, is emphasized through here. The second thing is that, at the same time, remember I told you one of the themes of the surah is the consistency of the message. That these teachings that Muhammad ﷺ has are consistent throughout all the teachings of all the prophets throughout all the generations and centuries. And again, so we're not only gonna see Ibrahim ﷺ mentioned, but we're also gonna see the mention of Musa salam, And we're also gonna see the mention of Harun salam, And we're gonna see the mention of Ismail, and Idris, and Yaqub salam. And so it's emphasizing the fact that this is the consistent message and teachings of all the prophets throughout the generations. And then the third and last thing here, is by from talking about Zakaria and Yahya and Maryam and Isa salam. It then switches here to talking about Ibrahim salam, And this is where the message starts to become very personal to the Prophet salam. And especially, it's not because it's not just talking about Ibrahim salam in general. Like in Surah Al-Anbiya we see the story of Ibrahim salam being thrown into the fire. In Surah Al-Safat we see the story of Ibrahim salam being commanded to sacrifice his son. In Surah Ibrahim, we see the mention of the command of Ibrahim salam to leave his family in the middle of nowhere. So there's many, many profound moments from the life of Ibrahim salam that are mentioned in the Qur'an. We see in Surah Al-Dhariyat, it talks about, again, the miraculous birth of sons to Ibrahim salam and his wives. That again, he was blessed with sons at a very, very old age. So there's so many specific instances from the life of Ibrahim salam in the Qur'an, but this mentions one specific instance. This mentions the challenge, the difficulty of Ibrahim salam dealing with a father who did not believe. A father who did not believe. A father who was a disbeliever. And not only was he a disbeliever, but he was very aggressive in his disbelief. He was very active in his disbelief. He was worshipping idols actively. Dad. In Surah Al-An'am, Dad, you really take these idols to be your God? Your gods? Your, your deities? You worshipped idols actively. Not only that, but then we're, we're, like we're gonna read here, we're gonna learn here later in this passage, he's threatening his son Ibrahim. 
If you don't get your act together, you don't start stop all this nonsense talk, all this crazy talk. If you don't stop this, you're going to have severe consequences. He's threatening his own son. You need to leave this. So he's very aggressive in his disbelief. And that's a great challenge. I want you I, I mean imagine that. It's a challenge for anyone. But then imagine being a prophet and a messenger. You are the receiver of divine revelation. And your own father just simply doesn't believe, but he attacks your beliefs. And he attacks you. Imagine how, how conflicting that must be. And it's being mentioned here as a consolation to the Prophet ﷺ. Remember, I take you all the way back to the introduction of the surah. The surah was revealed in the fourth or fifth year of prophethood. The fourth or the fifth year of the message of the, the preaching of the message in Mecca. And this is right about the time when the message had just gone public. So up until now, the message was very private. The message was being spread through personal networks. Now the message had gone public. And as soon as the message went public, what happened? The opposition started. Very aggressively, very openly. And I talked about how very soon after the revelation of the surah, you had a group of Muslims that migrated to... Abyssinia, Habasha, Eastern Africa. So the Prophet ﷺ is dealing with opposition. But here's the predicament of Rasulullah ﷺ. For Bilal radiallahu anhu, it was really tough. He was being tortured relentlessly. But you know, emotionally, he didn't really expect any better from these people. These people had... He was a slave to these people. He didn't belong to these people. He was an outsider. So when they start persecuting him, he goes, yeah, figures. I'm not one of them, I don't belong to them. Of course they're going to abuse me. But I want you to imagine how, conflict, how conflicting it could be for someone in the position of Rasulullah wasallam. That when Abu Lahab publicly curses him, and ridicules him, and mocks him, so when the message went, the public, the message went public, the da'wah went public, and the Prophet gathers everyone together, and he climbs up on the hill, and he gives the message to everyone, publicly. Who was the first person that spoke up? Abu Lahab. And when we say he was his uncle, we don't mean like some extended uncle, we don't mean like his dad's old buddy, his old dad's old college buddy. No, no, not that type of... A paternal uncle, a blood uncle. He was his dad's brother. He was his dad's actual biological brother. And he was someone who, for whom the he he was someone that had cared for the Prophet ﷺ after the Prophet's parents had passed away. He had cared for him. He was concerned about him. He used to watch over him, make sure he was okay, check on him. He was his uncle. And so when the Prophet ﷺ takes the public the the message public and the dawah public, Abu Lahab is the first one to speak up. Tabban laka ya Muhammad. Tabban laka ya Muhammad. You know, sometimes you see the literal translation, it means, may your hands be broken, O Muhammad. That's not what it meant in their language though. That's what it literally translates to. But that's not how they used it. That's not how they used it. It was, it was like cussing someone out. It was like cursing someone in public. Like humiliating someone. Like seriously cussing someone out in public. He cussed him out. Cussed him out. And then he says, Ajamatana lihada. 
This is what you got us here together for? Wasting our time with this garbage? What's wrong with you? In public. Can you imagine what that must have been like? How, how difficult that must be to overcome? And then not only that, but when the Prophet ﷺ, now that the public, the message and the da'wah is public, and he's walking around, meeting people, preaching to people, talking to people publicly, what is Abu Lahab? His own uncle, among others, among others, but his own uncle, Abu Lahab, what is he doing? He would literally walk around behind the Prophet ﷺ. There are narrations in the seerah, narrations in the seerah, that mentioned, when the Prophet would be walking through the public public areas or like marketplace or in the streets, Abu Lahab would literally be walking around behind him and he would have like rocks in his hands and he would throw rocks at him and he would like start yelling and screaming, Hey, this is my crazy nephew everybody. You know like you would mock someone in public? Hey, did you have you met my crazy nephew? Say hi to him, he's crazy. Like imagine doing that. And imagine having to deal with that. How difficult, how frustrating would it be to have a stranger do that, but then imagine your own uncle doing that. So the story of Ibrahim salam in the specific instance of his story, of his father disbelieving, is mentioned here, to console the Prophet wasallam. Oh Muhammad, what's going on with you? I know what's going on with you, I see what's going on with you. But don't worry, you're not the first person to deal with this situation. There were others before you, your forefather, Ibrahim dealt with the same type of a situation. But I was there for him. I guided him through that situation, and I will guide you in your predicament as well. I'll take care of you. I took care of Ibrahim, I'll take care of you. Don't worry, I'm here for you. Consoling him. Don't lose your cool, Muhammad. Oh Muhammad wasallam. don't lose your cool. You keep doing what you're supposed to do. You stay positive. You stay constructive, productive. And as far as these challenges and as demanding and as difficult as they may be, I took care of Ibrahim, I'll take care of you. This is what Allah is saying to the Prophet ﷺ by mentioning the story of Ibrahim salam. Okay, I'll go ahead and do at least the first part of the ayah just to try to inshallah make our time productive. It's a couple of more minutes till the adhan. وَذْكُرْ فِي الْكِتَابِ Ibrahim. وَذْكُرْ Mention. So not just remember, but mention. So not only, it's a reminder. See, that's what I'm saying. Allah is consoling the Prophet Allah is saying, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. You're dealing with some very difficult circumstances. But remember Ibrahim. Remember Ibrahim. And not only that, but it's also mentioned. They remind others of Ibrahim. Mention to others the story of Ibrahim and his situation. وَذْكُرْ فِي الْكِتَابِ Ibrahim. And not just the story of Ibrahim, but specifically that Story of Ibrahim which is being mentioned in the Qur'an. So again, we have that cleansing, we have that filtering going on here through the word fil-kitabi, fil-kitabi, that specifically you want to focus on that narrative, that story, that aspect of Ibrahim salam's life, which is being given to you in the Qur'an. Because anything else that you might find from the mushrikun of Mecca, from the Ahlul Kitab, the Jews and the Christians, whether it's authentic or not, you won't be able to differentiate between that. So what you need to do is you need to focus specifically on that which is being given to you in the Qur'an. And that is a very important lesson for us. And specifically by mentioning fil kitab in the Qur'an, in the kitab, it could also be uh, emphasizing or explaining one of the functions of the Qur'an. That the function of the Qur'an isn't just to tell the story, but the function of the Qur'an is to tell the story in a way that it enlightens you. 
in a way that it helps you through your own personal situations. And so many of us, now I'm kind of jumping the gun here, I'm getting ahead of myself. I plan to talk about this more in detail later. But there are people even today who sometimes deal with that predicament of maybe they took shahada, they accepted Islam, they reverted to Islam. But their parents have not. How do they deal with that situation? How do they reconcile that? How do they create a balance between these are my folks, these are my parents, but at the same time, they are disbelieving. Especially if they are aggressive in their disbelief. Especially if they're cracking down on that child because that child has believed. And even more specific, even you can get, you can even apply that within the Muslim community. Sometimes you have younger people. Sometimes you have youth and children who sometimes receive the tawfiq or the understanding or the ability to pray or to practice their deen or learn their religion. And their parents aren't quite there yet. And it creates a very severe conflict between them and their parents. How do they deal with that? How do you reconcile that? How do you manage that? That is what it will be talked about in these ayat. And we're going to talk, discuss that in a lot of detail. So, وَذْكُرْ فِي الْكِتَابِ إِبْرَاهِيمِ إِنَّهُ Most definitely he was kana. Now the kana here could be extra. What, what a lot of times what could be explained as, he either we translate it as he was, alright, he was, which we find it would make sense because it's talking about somebody in the past, or it could also be referred to as being extra, za'ida. But we know, grammatically speaking, you could categorize it as something as extra, but rhetorically speaking, in terms of meaning, there's nothing that's extra, there's nothing that's superfluous. Everything has a placement, everything has a reason, everything has a purpose. So what is the purpose of this? This is for extra emphasis. That he consistently was. It adds a meaning of not just emphasis, but consistently. He consistently maintained. What qualities did he maintain? What was he consistently? Siddiqan. Siddiqan. This comes from the root word which means to truthfulness. Truthfulness, that is the root of the word. Siddiq is the hyperbolic form, the hyperbolized noun. The hyperbolized noun, the hyper, hyperbolic form. Exaggeration, exaggerated noun, the exaggerated form. So he was very, very truthful. Extremely truthful. Now what does this mean that he was truthful? Number one, some of the scholars say that it means that he never told a lie in his life. He never told a lie in his life. And the reason why that has some Qur'anic relevance to it, and this is very, something very interesting, is... It's in another place, and maybe I'll talk about this tomorrow if we have some time. But in Suratul Anbiya, and I'd like you to go ahead and look that up on your own if you get get some time. In Suratul Anbiya, it talks about the story of Ibrahim alayhi how the people from his town, his people go out for a celebration, and he stays back and he says, "Inni saqim, I don't feel too good. I don't feel too good." And when they're gone, then he goes to the idols and he smashes up the idols and he takes the axe um, and he puts it around the neck of the biggest idol. And when they come back, then he says, "Ask him." Why don't you ask him? So the fact that he's now telling them, go and ask him, is he lying? When he said, I'm not feeling well, was he lying? Because he obviously stayed behind to create this whole scenario with the idols, was he lying? So there's a linguistic and literal explanation for what he did over there. It's a very clear explanation. You don't even have to try to twist the truth. It's very clear what, what he meant when he said over there. And I'll explain that tomorrow when we have more time. But nevertheless, here Allah subhanahu wa is making that clarification. No, no, no. Don't you dare ever call Ibrahim a liar. Siddiqan. He always told the truth. He never lied even once in his life. So that could be one implication of this. The other thing is Siddiq. Like it was a title of Ibrahim, uh, excuse me, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu as well. He was Siddiq. It means that somebody who 
is sincere and truthful, not just in his beliefs, but in his actions and his talk and his sayings. It could also mean somebody who synchronizes what he says and what he does. His action and his talk become synchronized. He's not just somebody who talks, but he does what he says. And it can also mean somebody who accepts whatever he is told by Allah, no questions asked. And look at Ibrahim. What did Ibrahim salam do? When he's being thrown into the fire, was he worried? We even find that narration in the hadith. The books of tafsir, they mention it. That the angels approached and said, Do you need any help? Do you want us to help you out? And what did he say? أَمَّا إِلَيْكَ فَلَا As far as you're concerned? No, I don't need any help. My, my tawakkul is on Allah. Allah will take care of me. Allah will help me. When he's told to leave his family in the middle of nowhere, what does he do? He does. بِوَادٍ غَيْرِ ذِي He leaves them where nothing, nothing lives. Not just people, but not even vegetation. When he's told to sacrifice his son, what does he do? He does it. He's ready to do it. Of course, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then saved. وَفَدَيْنَاهُ بِذِبِلْحِينَ عَظِيمٍ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ransomed the son with a lamb, right, with an animal to slaughter. But nevertheless, Ibrahim was ready to go. He was ready to go. So this was someone who, anytime he was told something by Allah, ready to do. I believe I'm ready to go. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu had that same quality. And I told that story previously. When, that, when Abu Jahl comes to him, he goes, did you hear what your buddy Muhammad is saying? Uh, about Al-Isra wal-Mi'raj? He went there and he went up to the sky and did all of this in one night and made it back. He says, if Muhammad wasallam did say that, because I don't trust you Abu Jahl, because you're a liar. But if Muhammad wasallam did actually say that, I got no problem believing. I'm unto be. I believe it. I got no problem with it. So Siddiq, he not only believed, but he did everything Allah told him to do. Nabiyan. And he was also a prophet. He was also a prophet. Alright? And we'll go ahead and stop here, inshallah. There's a little bit of an explanation about the word Nabiyan, but we'll go ahead and complete that in tomorrow's dars. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all the ability to practice everything that was said and heard. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi. Subhanakallahu wa bihamdik. Nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nasakfiraka wa natubu ilayk.